Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Inside the GM Studio E podcast. Yeah, podcast all about the tabletop RPG hobby, mostly centered for the GMs, but players can come on in, see if they can learn anything. I am your host, Matt. I am David. And today we've got uh, a little list uh, of gifts that I've come up with, gifts for the gamers since we are in the holiday season. Uh, I think this episode is actually going to come out like the day after Christmas, but fuck it. Gift giving season is year round. Did uh, you check that list twice or? Yes. Yes, I did. I oh, actually, okay. che- I actually right. checked it three times and changed it four times. I kept finding stuff that I liked. Possible. I know, right? Uh, as well as I've got uh, an email from Brandon. Uh, all about should the players know the numbers, uh, as well as we'll have our community questions. And if we have time, we've got a nice little main topic for you later. First off, our games have been on hiatus for quite a while. Um, both uh, my Savage Shadowrun game and our Curse of Strahd game has uh, been on delay, on pause for some time being. Uh, even when uh, we, uh, I got the text from... Was that Chris? I think it was Chris that texted yesterday that said, oh, are we going to play the one shot again? No, I, was, I had a, my phone next to me and I read that and I just threw it to the side. Like, I'm not even going to answer, dude. No, I didn't do anything for this week. That's kind of what I thought. I was like, that would have been nice to know two days ago when Beto canceled, but nobody said anything. So mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I already planned it. Yep, and uh, when it comes to this game, I'm on your your side. Uh, well, not on your side, but I'm in the same boat as you are usually. If you guys don't say it, if they don't say anything up until the very last second, like I'm good with like a day before. Yeah, sure, I can cook up something for, in a couple hours. But when you literally text in like an hour before we would start the game, no. I, well, I think he probably just was ignorant of whether he played it before. So maybe he thought like all like it was already set to go. So that's a fair assumption. You know, hey, maybe things are already set and you don't need to do any extra work. You just need to know whether someone is going to play. But as far as I'm concerned, it's just Beto canceled like it was like the day before or the two days before. Yeah. And if we were interested in playing this week then it feels like somebody should have spoken up and kind of poked the group. But since no one did, I was just kind of like, okay, well, I made other plans and I'm all in when we get back to Curse of Strahd. But mm-hmm. you know, it seems like Beto's got some stuff to iron out with work and it's, I'd rather just wait till everybody's on the same page. We're not going to get through my timeline of finishing the campaign by the end of the year, obviously. <laughs> obviously. But, uh, but, you know, it is what it is. Hopefully it'll give me some time to kind of make sure the remainder of the campaign is plotted out and I kind of understand where things are going. So that'll be good. Yeah. Have you thought about what we're going to do after we finish, quote unquote, Curse of Strahd? I'm sensing a general interest to kind of carry these characters on to... Level 20. Mm -hmm. So what I'm likely to do is try to create an amalgam of connected adventures that are almost like a second campaign. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a concept for a campaign that I've had bouncing around my head now for several years. And... It's not really pertinent what dungeon maps I use or anything like that. It's just more the overarching plot, I think, could end up escalating to a good crescendo for a career for adventurers. So I will likely do that, uh, assuming everybody makes it out of Barovia (laughs) intact. That is not a sure thing at this point. So, nope. With our track record right now, and uh, I don't know, we've got a we got a good record, but uh, 
if you count how many times we go unconscious during encounters, our likelihood of survival is still very small. But you never know. I don't know that I would say it's small. You have to expect a certain degree of characters. You know, if you're testing your limits, you're going to be kind of falling unconscious occasionally. And, and But the party's resources are at an all-time high. But we are getting to a chapter of the adventure where things are starting to get more difficult. And so party can adjust and maximize their new capabilities to meet that challenge. I think that success is likely, but not assured. So hopefully that provides some tension for the adventure and capping it out that it's not just as simple as going through the motions that there might need to be some deliberation. And I'm trying to think of a few things that can kind of evolve the the stakes and stuff. We'll see how it goes. I'm getting the sense that I really don't know what to do is if a few players make it out and the other players don't mm. really know how to handle that. Custom in my head, it's either a TPK or a success. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's a whole middle ground in there, which might be like one or two of the characters die. And then it's like, yeah, is it really worth it? The same campaign, the same chronicle, whatever you want to call it. We'll see. It should be different in tone, tenor, and theme. Ooh, all than Barovia right. has. So it'll be fairly different. And I think. If there is interest in continuing on, which there seems to be, I don't imagine the players want more of the same. So I'm try to change it up a little bit. Nice change in scenery is always good. Yeah. Uh, a part of that, it's actually a good segue to come to the email that we got from uh, from Brandon. Now, unfortunately, Brandon, I know if you are listening, uh, this came like two weeks ago. I was going to bring it up last week, but we ran out of time. Brandon wants to know when it comes to skill, uh, skill challenges, encounters, or anything else that has a DC target number or whatever you want to call it, should the players know what it is? Should I, as the game master, tell them this is the number that you're going for and this is the number, this is the number that you will need to succeed? I uh, just want to know for me and my group alone, I, for one, am one that keeps all target numbers, DCs, armor classes, and the such as secrets. I've known other game masters that just put it right out there in front street and let them know what the target numbers are. What do you guys do and what do you suggest, Brandon? This is actually an interesting conundrum that I think kind of bifurcates two schools of thought there, Brandon, which is transparency versus mystery. Yeah. And both have immense value to your game. I will lay out what I think the competing goods are here. And I guess, Matt, feel free to interject mm -hmm. if you have any additional thoughts on this front. Letting the players know what the target numbers are ensures confidence that the DM is playing by the rules. You say 15... I get 15 or better. I know I succeed. It also gives them an idea of what they're striving for. Mm -hmm. So they know whether to endeavor to do it based on their likelihood of success. That's one camp. The other camp is probably framing in their minds some sense of realism some sense of their characters don't experience the world in concrete numbers. They're experiential. And so numbers typically tend to pull players out of the narrative, out of the flavor and texture. Also, the DM does reserve some mystique around whether 
there is a chance of failure or success, whether a monster is typical or atypical. And that has value in building mood and tension. Because you can't have the players knowing everything the DM knows. Otherwise, it ruins that, that mystique and that divide. That said, would, first of all, would you have anything to add to either of those two categories? Nope. Or do you think that they're, those are You've already come out and said that uh, if you say the numbers, that's the I'm going to roll in front of you with the rest of the group. I don't hide behind a, a screen. Uh, that means that you are you're very rules driven uh, and you have you have a number for everything. Uh, that's my one point of that. Uh, and so far, yeah, you've covered everything pretty good. At least that I would agree I would go with. There are some trade-offs. So, in the first scenario, having a hard number and giving that to the players cuts in a certain way, which means that you can't ever cut your players slack. You just can't. You'd say it's a 17 or an 18, there's no way for you to be like, well, that's pretty close, and I kind of think that it's important that the character succeeds here. You can't be a more forgiving DM. Yep. The numbers are hard and fast, and they are immutable. And in that way, that is their benefit. The players know what's what. Mm -hmm. In the other camp, you can do that. There can be some mystique. You can leave the characters um, kind of guessing. But I think there's a middle ground here that allows for kind of the best of both worlds, which is, for instance, if you're fighting an enemy and you communicate to the players, enemy is wearing plate armor. Now, you don't need to say that his armor class is 18. The players likely know that mm -hmm. because they can wear plate armor and they know that. Similarly, for a skill check, you don't need to say the DC is 16. But if a player is endeavoring to do something, the likelihood that they have some idea of how difficult the, the maneuver is, is an almost certainty. So maybe you could have three categories or four categories. It's really easy. It's, it's easy. It's, it's moderately difficult. It's very difficult. And in your head, you have some rain. Say, if I say something as easy, I'm likely setting the DC at 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. And if it's maybe 12, because you might have something that's between like you know, give the, give the players qualitative information. Ah, it's moderately difficult. So they know that it might be anywhere from 13 to 16. And then they don't, and then there's some mystique about whether they actually will hit the number. If it's hard, you know, make it, you know, maybe 18 to 20 or 20 to 21. The book suggests just doing three DCs, you know, mm -hmm. easy, moderate, and hard, 10, 15, 15 20. 20. I'm a big fan of kind of splitting the difference between those numbers occasionally. I do that a lot because I don't think I do it like yeah, 12, like, 16. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that that's very similar. You're communicating to the players. They're wearing X amount of armor. However, for monsters with natural armor and so forth, they're not likely to know that. Mm -hmm. um, however, you can handle some of that in the description, you know, picture, picture an animal. Right, any given animal, a walrus versus a rhino. Which of them do you think has a better defense? Right, a rhino has like basically giant fucking plates on its skin. Like you know, if you describe things in a vivid way, natural armor or whatever, or even that particular character is swift and fast, and and you know they move around the battlefield in a certain way. You don't need to be like he's got a fifteen armor class even without armor. You could do that, but I think it does take you out of the narrative. Not to mention your players will likely piece together things over time. Mm -hmm. In the same way that like once you fight a flame skull, you don't need to be told what a flame skull's capabilities are if you that 
monster has demonstrated that particular skill set at some point. Yeah. And it's also with AC. As soon as you, you can figure out the AC pretty quickly in the encounter. Most players can. Similarly with health, you know, you don't need to tell players directly he has five hit points left. He has seven hit points left. I find that things like unscathed or battered up a bit down to half hit points would be like, you know, bloody, they used to call that, badly wounded. Qualitative things like that. If, you know, he's hanging on by a thread, he can barely stand up, he's breathing heavy, there's blood coming out of his ears. Like, he looks like if he just leaned on him, he would fall over. It's like, okay, he's probably like five hit points mm -hmm. or fewer. One more hit of any sort would probably kill him. But you don't need to get tracking into the 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 exact numbers in particular for hit points, especially because certain things, when you turn them into numbers, they become more like a board game and less like a role playing. Mm -hmm. For instance, when monsters have immunities, resistance, regeneration, it it's really boring for a player to be like, oh, I hit him, I strike him out for eight points of damage, and you go like, he he still has 60 hit points left. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, what do you mean? He still has 60 hit points. Instead, a more evocative description about the characters likely being aware that their attacks are not damaging them in, in a specific way. Mm -hmm. And so they're usually the players can pick up on that, at least from my experience. Yeah. They can tell like, oh, he's probably resistant to this damage or sometimes even downright immune to it. That's been a big part of your toolkit recently. I think it's more vivid and, and story-driven than, than... Sure, they might not know that it's perfectly in line with, like, you know, a dwindling reserve, but especially with a big bad guy, you want there to be some mystique about capabilities, how much they're being damaged. Otherwise, you're incentivizing a more Warhammer style of play where the players might min-max going like, oh, okay, I know that guy's only got one hit point left, so let's never mind my primary attack on him because my offhand attack will cause least one point of damage so i'm going to main attack this guy and offhand attack that guy and it's like a certain amount of that is good and thinking in those terms is good again your players don't exist as a brain in a jar they can see the battlefield which enemies are battered up which ones are really hurt which ones have not been hit at all you know you fire an arrow into one of their shoulders and it you know sticks in his shoulder you can see mm -hmm. that that's the guy you just hit and so certain descriptors like that i think split the difference you're communicating to your players that something is difficult that an enemy is difficult to hit immune you can do that without pulling back the curtain entirely and giving them access to all of the stats and data mm. now maybe there's a different way to go about doing that but that's the that's the tactic i favor and it seems like that's a tactic you probably favor too. it is you know, I play a lot of Savage Worlds, and I tell the players straight off, you know, the big target number that you're looking for is four. As long as you hit a four, you should be good. Um, but it's not always that. And sometimes one of my favorite things to do is ask a player to make a roll for anything. It could be, you know, just, hey, give me a, you know, give me a, a perception roll. And they look at me like, what the fuck, four? And I say, no, 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 just roll it, roll it. And they roll it, and they're like, five hmm mm -hmm. okay okay mm. and i won't say anything and i'll i'll act like i'm writing something down or i'll just look at him and give him a look like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when really i was looking for something that's going to happen and i just want to know if they critically fumble or not if they fumble then i want a weird you know a harder outcome uh in the next thing that i was going to have them do uh Especially in something like Savage Worlds, because when they roll in, they're like, three? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. But I okay. just want, really, in the back of my head, I just want to make sure that they're not going to fumble on it. And that was it. That's all I want. Because normally it's like something like that, you know, it's usually really easy shit, or it's just them talking that it doesn't really matter. I just want to kind of uh, do something to you that would, could possibly shift the narrative later. Um. 
Also with, uh, cause I've been reading a lot of ICRPG recently. And one of their rules is that you roll the die or you put out the D12 or the D20 out there that has the target number for everything. I'm fine with that because there's some things that can go up and down. There is still defenses for the characters, but I like the mystery of the target number. Uh, that's why even in stuff with Savage Worlds, you can still say, make a roll minus this. Or if you want, you know, like, oh, you could tell them, you know, there's going to be modifiers because of some things. And they're like, oh, well, okay. And they roll a four and they're like, should I spend a penny? Should I spend a penny on this? He said that there's going to be modifiers. He never said that it was good modifier or bad modifier. I'm going to spend a penny. So that's why I do love... uh I like to keep it a nice mystery because it gives that extra suspense and it makes people use the resources when they have them instead of trying to hoarding hoard it the entire time. Part of the caution of this, I would say is a point in favor of the transparency element, which is to say the DM cannot intervene. He can fudge things for better or worse. Maybe you're the kind of DM that just kind of, subconsciously wants things to go a certain way for better or worse. The players will pick up on that over time. They will just know, like, especially if they play with more than one DM or they just go, Hey, I hardly ever fail on stuff (laughs) or I hardly ever succeed on the things that I'm doing that are really outside the bounds of, of the predefined adventure. And that will leave them frustrated, not really knowing what the rules are like why does it seem like i'm always failing or why does it seem like i'm always succeeding and it's because the dm might not likely you know doesn't even necessarily have a hard number in mind sometimes the circumstances warrant some latitude and so you could even have it like not totally rigid in your mind, easy, moderately difficult or hard and just go like, well, let me see, you know, what's the threshold for each of these? Maybe the player splits the difference and it was a particularly good idea. You might give it a thumbs up or maybe if the player is trying to flout some sort of, you know, kind of not cheat, but uh, circumvent something in a way and you'd set them you know, a hard, a moderate DC and they kind of get on the low end. You kind of give it a thumbs down, but do too much of that. And the players will feel like their roles are inconsequential. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you would might want to reserve that, that denial for something that is plot worthy. I mean, I've, I've had that happen before where players will be like, I'm going to engage or, you know, I'm going to try to like browbeat this guy. Roll charisma. I got a 22. Yeah, you fail. And they're like, what? Yeah, you fail. And like the no explanation as to why you fail is like kind of chilling, right? Because like, that's an empirically high number. And so if you reserve those moments for certain things, break something and you're like, I got 24 on my strength check. And you're like, yep, that's not going to do it. Fuck, okay. Well, I know that's probably a fruitless attempt then. But you could have communicated that by saying, I'm going to, you know, players will likely ask you questions about things. How difficult would it be for me to slide along this fucking ice and like trip this guy, toss a weapon to my ally? Like, well, it's going to be an acrobatic check. Um, It would be fairly difficult. Um, Or you could probably do that. You might even give them some information based on their skills you know that they have high dexterity and you know that they're trained in acrobatics and you could say something like for you it probably wouldn't be too difficult now that doesn't mean that the dc is any given number but you're basically telling them if you perform fairly averagely given what i know your stats are maybe the dc is is kind of high but you're giving them like their character likely knows how confident they are in an ability to do something you know a lumbering fucking lead-footed dwarf is not going to endeavor to do such a maneuver, but a dexterous elven rogue would 
would feel more confident doing that. And so you can give them a sense of how confident they are that they could pull this maneuver off. And so similarly, like I'm going to try to break down a door and you communicate what the door looks like. Is mm. it old, decrepit, rotted? Or, or is it like reinforced deal with like, you know, made from stone or something? It's like, well, that is really going to anchor in their mind a rough amount of difficulty. And so that or that can also that add on to the narrative. <clears throat> as you describe the door as being somewhat rotted, nothing but wood, and then, you know, a, a rope loop uh, to open it. And uh, the fighter comes up and he says, you know, I'm going to kick it in. Like, oh, well, I'm going to need a, you know, an athletics check. Like, All right. Well, 18. <sighs> Doesn't work, dude. You kick into it and then nothing but shoot you back to the wall. And all of a sudden, everybody just starts to go, hmm. Mystique. Yeah. And so you have to weigh what the consequences for doing one or the other. But I think there is a kind of not throwing out a, the baby with the bathwater kind of situation. Well, there you go, Brandon. I think we've uh, significantly answered your question. Uh, if you are on the same boat as us, or if you just wanted our opinion, keep it a secret. It's a little bit more fun that way. All right, let's move on from emails. Let's go right into the community question. Dave, go ahead and give us our number. 18. 18. Mm -hmm. All right, this one comes from Johan2041. Second guessing the big bad evil guy's re big reveal and would like a second opinion. Here are the details. I have so uh, I have so far. Some of my players might see this, so uh, if you are listening, uh, please turn away. <laughs> Warning: I'm still working out some details of how to have this happen without breaking too many D and D five e rules. There's one big bad evil guy who has been terrorizing their country. After he's defeated, a wish sleeps. A wish sleep spell will be cast over the entire city, followed by a summoning ritual completing and the city's population being sacrificed to the abyss, characters included. From here, they have two options. Create new characters and have them learn about the disappearance of the great heroes, leaving a lead of how to get them out of the abyss and or have the original player characters break their way out of the abyss to come back and deal with the big bad evil guy threat. When the sleep spell is cast, they'll have a chance at a saving throw to not be affected by it. This will allow the character to meet the big bad evil guy in real form before the ritual is complete. Should I allow them a saving throw to either resist the ritual or flee fast enough before it's complete? Or am I delusional in thinking this entire thing is a good idea? I think a little... <laughs> First of all, because I got to read over this and kind of digest it a little bit. I think, yes, it can be fun. I've done this before in past campaigns of creating the second group that has to free or accompany the heroes. The heroes have gone missing and this happens. But I think in this situation, the best thing to do, go with the saving throw and let them try to get there first to actually confront the big bad evil guy before any of this happens uh, and breaking out of the abyss can just be fun. I think that's a great idea. The idea of, of a second group, like I said, it's worked in the past, but the problem I found with it is that sometimes they'll have a little bit too much fun with their characters and they just want to continue on with those guys instead. And that can throw a bit of a wrench in the campaign. Uh, what, what do you think, Dave? First of all, I want to get some clarity on what he's asking. Mm -hmm. It seems like the campaign is culminating in a conflict with some big bad guy. The characters will confront that big bad guy and fight him. However, upon his defeat, there will be like an auto-trigger sleep spell that like simultaneously transports the characters to the abyss. Is that right? Yep. Followed by a summoning ritual completing 
and the city's population being sacrificed to the abyss. So the entire city is sacrificed to the abyss. So it puts them all to sleep and then a ritual where somebody sacrifices them, presumably the bad guy. I don't, the bad guy is not dead then really. He has like some fail save. Yeah, he's just been defeated. He's not dead. Got yet. So the conundrum is whether to have that happen and the characters escape from the abyss, have the abyss, have them get a saving throw and get a second chance if they succeed to confront, to actually defeat the big bad right, guy. Before, before the ritual even happens. And the third option would be a new group of heroes a new group of heroes that come and go down to the abyss to save the characters. But that, but what it sounds like is it would be like a side thing. It would just be until they freed the other heroes and then they go back to their other characters. None of these options are ideal. And I'll explain why each of them is somewhat odd. First, the option of having the big bad, cast a categorical sleep spell and putting all the characters down into the abyss where they have to escape. That's probably the best option, Mm. but it railroads the players a bit and they can, they'll probably feel kind of cheated by defeating this guy. It's a plot twist, but it's a plot twist that they can't really affect the outcome of unless you give them some sort of way to determine that that's going to happen. It can't just be a total surprise or they might feel a little robbed of the ability to avoid it, in which case that's a little cheap. But it's probably the best option. The other option with the third, the second party, isn't a bad option, but I agree with your sentiment that why are why are these characters... The, 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 the narrative should be focused on the player characters. And if it's not focused on the player characters then it should be for a very short time. So how mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like saving characters from the abyss is going to be an inconsequential portion of the narrative. It seems like it'll be important, in which case don't, don't take player or don't take characters out of the narrative that the, the players have invested time and energy in developing and have some level of attachment to and expect them to have the same enthusiasm for the narrative. Um, The other option to give them a saving throw, I think is actually worse than the first option. And because the problem with that is, is then you get some PCs that succeed and some that fail. And if you're not prepared and then you're basically splitting the party, Mm -hmm. half of the party is out of the, out of the rest of the, the conflict. And then this other half of the party is they're diminished. Presumably, if this threat is big, it requires all the resources of the entire party. And in which case, there needs to be some sort of kind of a pass-fail sort of situation. You can't have the, the PCs just being banished completely out of the narrative. And in which case, they might as well just get up and go home <laughs> until next week. So that's not a good... Uh, situation either it sounds like this dm has had this concept in his head and then now he's starting to kind of question the method by which he puts it into play and that's perfectly legitimate but i would say just stick with your instincts if you're going to railroad the players as long as you haven't been doing it too much to this point in the campaign but something like a big bad guy conflict at the end of a fucking campaign is likely to piss your characters, players, off pretty badly because they're like, well, how will, how were we ever supposed to know that this would happen? And, and it just happens. We have no chance to avoid it. It's just, it happens. Mm-hmm. Now we're in the abyss. Now that could be a cool kind of like, aha, there's more to the adventure than you thought or whatever. But I think that it might, might hurt your characters a little bit. But that said, some people really like kind of twists around every turn, especially if it means their characters aren't dead in an otherwise uh, conflict. What are their conditions that they're in the abyss? How are they in the abyss? Is this their souls? Is it 
I mean, the details don't sound like they're super well fleshed out. Uh, uh, so I would say maybe go back to the drawing board and see how you can capture. I'll agree with that. This the same spirit of of what it is you're going for without being married to this one idea in particular, mm. because it seems like uh, it seems like you haven't been building toward it in the way that communicates to your players what's likely going to happen. And, and that will feel kind of annoying. It was like when I played Super Ghosts and Goblins for the first time, and, and it's a really hard game and you get all the way to the end of it. And you're like, ha ha, I beat it. And they're like, oh no, that was all just a dream. You have to go back and beat the game again. <laughs> like, I cannot communicate how upset I was about that. I don't think that any D&D player would want to feel that. So. No, no. Uh, one way I would suggest going about this, if you don't want to scrap the entire idea, have them have some sort of object that helps nullify the sleep spell. When it happens, tell them, you know, you feel drowsy, you feel sleepy as you begin to, you know, you fall to one knee and your, your eyes close as everything goes dark. At first they think they've lost, you know, the big bad evil guy is one. What's going to happen? Uh, but then tell them that, you know, uh, as you open your eyes, you find yourself maybe in a different location. Uh, maybe they've been swept away by someone else. Uh, but bring them to that to that edge there. Uh, make them think that, yes, everything we've done has possibly come down to the, uh, you know, everything we've done, we weren't able to thwart this. Uh, or if it is the surprise that after they defeat the big bad evil guy that all this shit starts happening. So, like, oh, fuck, what have we done? Uh, but now they get to come back and figure out what to do afterwards. Uh, but I'm on Dave's side right here that I think it needs to go back to the beginning and kind of rework from the beginning. You could also figure out a way to kind of maintain some of the key elements, which is if you want the characters to end up in the abyss, Rather than having other characters go after them or having them need to escape, you want to maintain that element. And you also want to maintain some sort of, I don't know, ticking clock mm -hmm, element. Mm -hmm. It's conceivable that you could have the big bad put the entire town to sleep. And then he simply absconds. He's defeated. He's weakened in some way. So he slinks away to the abyss, opens some crack in the ground and like slinks away. And now the characters have to pursue him into the abyss to defeat him like on his home turf before this ritual goes off and whatever cataclysmic event occurs and all the townsfolks are like dead forever or whatever. That maintains some of the same elements, the ticking clock, to, and then the players don't feel blindsided. They would have to, in some way, be, to your point, immune to the sleep spell. Mm. And so that would be kind of an easy thing to kind of embed. I guess it depends on how far he is into the campaign. If he can start dropping breadcrumbs to the, maybe the, the characters have some birthmark, so they have some item, or there's some sort of like destined to be immune to this particular effect that is not really existing. It's more of a plot device it's not like he cast a sleep spell yeah. it, it's like it's like some sort of effect for narrative purposes and so if you're not far enough along in the campaign where you can start kind of adding little breadcrumbs in there or add breadcrumbs into the point where characters would know that this is likely to occur and take some steps to kind of avoid it then you can get all the party together you don't want to do anything that like put some party members in one camp and another in another camp, especially at the culmination of a big adventure, unless that unless that end of the campaign is and the two camps you're splitting them into is dead and alive. <laughs> at the end of a campaign, that's fine. Like, oh, we lost some guys, but like these two characters kind of soldiered on. The campaign's over. Yeah. Like they both meet an end. They both fulfilled the story and maybe their goals and so but anything beyond that where the adventure goes on don't don't split them into different locales different camps of success and failure because there needs to be part of unity there in that big final dramatic moment well there you go johan um if you uh i hope that it worked out better for you we're probably a little late on this but uh for anybody else that might have something like this ever show up 
hopefully this little bit of advice has given you that, uh, that little push that says, you know what, maybe I'm going to rethink this. Go back to the drawing board, like David said. All right, David, I have gone through and I made myself a little list. Okay. Nice little list for the holidays that if the, uh, the players wanted to maybe buy something for the GM or possibly the GM want to buy for the players or who knows, maybe they all just want to go in on something together. These are my top five, uh, my top five, really, of best gifts to give to gamers. Now, I tried to be very system agnostic about the whole thing. Um, my first one that I will go th with is uh, Loki maps. Loki battle maps is something that I found to be very, very cool. Um, now, Dave, I know that you're... You're familiar with a lot of the battle maps that we would get with adventures you know these fold out mm -hmm. double-sided battle maps right paizo sure. wizards of the coast they make them and they're usually about anywhere from eight to twelve dollars uh loki battle maps that you can find at lokibattlemaps.us uh loki spelled like the uh the trickster god l-o-k-e these are books that's not how you spell Loki, actually. I know. L-O-K-I is that, but... Um, uh, these are actual books, hardcovered books with spiral uh, bindings that come uh, in different sizes all the way from 12 by 9 to 16 by 12 inches that fold out to these big... As you open it up, it folds out into these big double-sided uh, maps. Uh the best thing about it is that you get like there's like 64 maps in each book and of course they're a little bit more expensive than just your regular double-sided map but you got to think 60 pages of maps at 12 by 9 inches for 27 bucks that's a fucking steal they also have it all the way from medieval fantasy all the way to cyberpunk they have any kind of maps that you would like so that is the the beginning that I uh, that I suggest something a little bit more for the game master, but the players are also going to love this as well. Next is a subscription, uh, like a subscription box, just like any other loot box out there that you can do. Uh, this is something I would suggest just doing like a all the players or everybody throwing in some money and getting like maybe just a couple months of this because it's pretty fucking pricey. But it's kind of cool that in this box, you get all sorts of, of cool shit. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you right now that dungeoninabox.com is where you can find this sign up for it. It's either $27 a month or $105 for three months. Now, before you get all crazy, let me tell you what's in this box. One thing I'm not a big fan of is I believe the adventures that they put into it are only for D&D 5th edition. But you get an adventure book, 24 plus pages of monsters, tables, and encounters, enough content for at least a month of gaming. It also comes with maps, two giant encounter maps, plus detailed terrain tiles to build for the adventures. Uh, you get two sculpted minis uh, that are unpainted, but they are very, very cool looking. Uh, this part right there, that's like 24, 25 bucks right away. You get some skinny minis. These things I've been falling in love with. I love skinny minis. Uh, they are pretty much like, a, I think everybody that listens to this is old enough that you should all know what Shrinky Dinks are. Uh, <laughs> I used to have a big thing for Batman Shrinky Dinks. You get them out, you cut them out, you can color them in, throw them in the oven. They become little like almost plastic just things that you put on a base and you make little characters out of them these ones the little skinny minis they're colored uh, with on uh transparent plastic but they have a front and a back as well as they come with a base very cool i love these things because they're easily transportable uh it comes with 3d terrain comes with a couple pieces of 3d See, 3D terrain that you can put together without need of glue, no nothing. You just come out, you punch it out, fold it up, make your terrain. 
and it comes with a one shot. Uh, so with all this, that's a lot of shit for uh, $27. I think it's worth it for at least one box. If you guys all want to get together, depending on how many players you have, throw in, do the $105 for three months and just see what kind of cool yeah, yeah, shit you see, get. That, that's what I don't understand. $27 for one mm -hmm. month and $103 for three months. But if you paid $27 for three months, that would only be $81. Why are they, what are they upcharging you for an extra 20 something dollars? That's a good question. Go to dungeoninabox.com <laughs> and find out. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Um, the next one I want to say is just a basic one. If you play online, uh, pay for a sub uh, for your GM. Uh, help pay for the sub if you do sub to roll 20 or maybe buy his favorite BTT uh, buy uh, a copy of Fantasy Grounds or Foundry or even D&D Beyond do a sub to D&D Beyond or buy one of the bundles for D&D Beyond uh, that's always just a great thing to do for the game master and for the players alike because it'll all benefit everybody mm -hmm. uh, next are adventure journals now, these are a little bit more for uh, the players as each journal. Uh, these ones that I picked are made by uh, Scott Kurtz, who does uh, PVP webcomic. He made these uh, a few years ago, and you can find these on uh, toonhound.com. Uh, just look up in the store. For $20, you can either make up to three characters, do three levels, if you're afraid of erasing. Uh, but these things are, I mean, these things are like moleskin quality. I've seen a couple reviews on these. Uh, what you have is, you uh, they're eight, uh, eight by five inches, uh, 196 pa pages, foil stamp uh, buckram cover in six different colors. Um, Comes with the book ribbon, of course, and the uh, the what is that little elastic thingy that closes the the book? I don't know what it's called either. Um, but here, what you could do is you can have you have your uh, spot for your spells. You have a spot for your character itself. Uh, it also has a, lots of spots for notes, familiars, and companions. Uh, like I said, 196 pages of up to three characters or three levels, depending on how you want to do it inside there. Unless you're not afraid of erasing or making a kind of you, then uh, you can make a whole bunch of different characters. Last, uh, my number five. This is something that uh, is for everybody. Uh, this is another one that I highly suggest that everybody uh, gets together and makes uh, a little donation on this. Of course, you go to Etsy. Etsy is a big place for if you're finding anything gaming, anything GM or player related, go to Etsy. You're going to find all sorts of shit. But one that I found is the D&D whiskey set. Personalized whiskey That's gift nice. set. Comes with a whiskey decanter. Uh, it comes with six glasses that you can have personally uh made so that as you can see here dave dave gets to see the pictures one that says dungeon master rogue sorcerer fighter wizard warlock and of course dungeon masters watching you uh it comes in a really sweet fucking box uh with a beholder on the front uh it also comes with coasters that will match your glass your personalized glass um Dave, how much would you pay for something like this? Now, remember, this is all personalized. First of all, I love that you said this is for anybody. It's like, no, Matt, this <laughs> is for people that drink. <laughs> it's not for everybody. A lot of people don't drink. Um, Wait, what? Yeah, exactly. What does that mean? Um, if I had to, well, it comes in a box too, right? It's a person. Uh, it's a. Um, it's a wood box. Uh, that comes with it. So what do you mean it's personalized? Like your name goes on well, it? Well, uh, because you can, um, like on the glass, it says there's one for the dungeon master, but then you can put your right. class on it. Okay, so they just have options. Yeah. It's not really customizable. It's not like I could put like my character's name on it or something. Yeah, it didn't say in there that you could put just your class name. 
Okay. All right. Well, I don't know. Like 70 bucks, 60, 70 bucks is what I guess. Excellent. $64 right now. It's on sale. Um, original price was uh, $128. Yeah. See, they do that. This thing's worth like 70 bucks. It's, it's a gla- It's a set of glasses. It's mm-hmm. cool. It's got coasters. But like, oh, it's, it was 100 and it was $500 <laughs> and now it's 50 It's like, no, no, it's this is the pricing is what it's worth it's worth between 60 and maybe as much as 80 bucks depending on how thick the glasses and the decanters are mm. i mean they don't look super heavyweight or anything like that to me um but you know what do i know <laughs> i mean if they were really nice heavyweight glasses you know that like i bought some damn whiskey glasses and i dropped one like off my table which is about three feet up and it just, I have ceramic tile on my floor and it just bounced. It's not chip. It's not cracked. It's like, yeah, I'm like, that's a fucking glass. But that has been my top five uh, gifts for gamers this year. Uh, and I think with that, we're going to call this a podcast right now. Uh, next week, I am going to have um, the Inside the GM Studio awards of 2022 i've been putting together a list of awards for the best and the worst of everything like here dave i'll give you a little sample of what's coming up all right um because my favorite part i don't even really watch the oscars anymore i'm not a big fan of the oscars really but i love the razzies i do love the razzies so i wanted to make sure that we put in the worst as well um the worst setting of 2022 Spelljammer. And the nominees are <laughs> Spelljammer by Wizards of the Coast, Spelljammer by Wizards of the Coast, and Spelljammer by Wizards of the Coast. And the winner for worst setting of 2022 is Dave. Will you read this note? Uh, I mean, it, it could only be Spelljammers because it's so terrible. Yes, yes, never played. Everybody it. never played it. Still yep, bad. Still don't care. Nobody cares about Spelljammer. I know. Thank you. Thank you. I know we're all hoping that Spelljammer would win. You're all a great audience. Yeah. Thank you so much. Make sure that you come back next week to uh, hear the full list of awards uh, for 2022. Okay, so, um, so yeah, look forward to that. It's going to be coming up next week, and I've been working pretty hard on this one. I'm I'm looking forward to it myself. Uh, but if you guys have anything that you want us to talk about coming up into the new year, uh, send it to InsideTheGMStudio at gmail.com. Uh, let us know your questions, your comments. Uh, if you want to see what our faces look like or how fat Matt really is, you can ask that too. I will be glad to tell you. Uh, but for this week, for Inside the GM Studio, I have been Matt. I am David. Good night.